A few weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Romans, and we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans today, and we'll be looking at the book of Romans for, for quite a while. But in the book of Romans, you can see this idea of this new life we have in Christ as it's described and it's illustrated in a variety of ways. And in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, so in the early chapters of the book of Romans, you have the Apostle Paul setting up what he's talking about in the coming chapters, and he's laying a foundation for the things that he's going to be building upon as he develops some of these thoughts. And uh, when we looked in Romans chapter 1, we could see basically the depravity of mankind apart from Christ. And when you get into, into Romans chapter 2, which we're in today, we're going to see this idea of self-righteousness displayed. Because sometimes it's very easy to notice the depravity of others and very difficult to notice our own self-righteousness. And so you have the Apostle Paul addressing this as an issue here in the early sections of the book. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. And we're going to be talking about what will self-righteousness cost me? That's what we're going to be looking at. Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This is what it states. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today and to be able to gather together in this place to study it, to meditate on its content, to grow from it. Lord, we're grateful that you've given us this kind of privilege. And so, Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open to the teaching of your word this morning, that you'd help us uh, just to realize the things that you were communicating through the Apostle Paul by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would apply these truths to our lives, that we wouldn't look at portions of Scripture like this and think that these are things that are primarily speaking about other people. Lord, we recognize that this was a letter that you addressed to the church at Rome. These were our brothers and sisters in Christ who were receiving this content. And so, Lord, we pray that we would look at this and we would apply it to, to our lives and that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you'd speak to us now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So there are several personality traits that can be somewhat off-putting, right? When you're meeting somebody, when you're talking to people, when you're getting to know people, there's definitely certain personality traits that I think universally we would say, all right, that is an off-putting personality trait. And I would assume that most people would probably put the concept of or the trait of self-righteousness pretty high on their list of undesirable qualities. Because self-righteous people carry themselves in a particular way. They carry themselves in such a way that they convey that they are better than everyone else they interact with. They tend to look down on others. They tend to make people feel weak. They tend to make people feel insignificant. They sneer at others uh, when they're making mistakes or when they're making errors. And they rarely hesitate to puff themselves up in your presence in the hopes that you're going to validate them in one fashion or another. Self-righteousness, by the way, is something that many people in this world expect to experience when they encounter devoted Christians. Now, quite possibly, you know, when that's the case, it may be that someone they encountered in the past has left them with that impression, or maybe they've bought into some of the ways that Christians can be stereotyped in the media, or maybe they've even been on the receiving end of uh, just hurtful condemnation from someone who at one point had professed to believe in Jesus Christ. All of those things can sometimes factor into that. But When we're thinking about this subject, and when we're talking about self-righteousness, and when we see the Apostle Paul bringing up this concept here in the first part of Romans chapter 2, I don't want us to look at that, like I said a moment ago, and think that this is something just for other people. I want us to be introspective as we look throughout the course of this book. So have you ever asked yourself if self-righteousness is something that's present in your life? Have you ever experienced the damaging effects that it can have on relationships. Would you like your life to give others a glimpse of what it actually looks like to have the presence of Christ within you? If so, Romans chapter 2 gives us great counsel. Because in this portion of Scripture, we're shown what a self-righteous life looks like, but we're also warned that it comes at a cost. There's a high price that we pay for self-righteousness. And so as we look at this portion of Scripture today, we're going to be asking the question, the big question, what can self-righteousness cost me? What would be the cost of a self-righteous life? What would it cost me? And I want to point out several things that Paul brings up in this chapter that it costs us. And one of the things that it costs us is the ability to identify issues in our lives that need to be addressed Look again at the first few verses, verses 1 to 3. Let me reread them. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Let's pause there for a moment. So the early church at Rome, uh, it consisted of believers who had different backgrounds. They grew up in different ways. Some of the believers in the church at Rome, they grew up immersed in the Gentile or the Greek culture. And other believers grew up following the traditions of Judaism. Now, 
again, it could be very easy to point out the faults of, grew, of, of those who grew up differently from us, and a little bit more difficult to notice our own faults, and apparently that was somewhat common among the believers in Rome. Now, in chapter 1, which we spent a couple weeks looking at, the Apostle Paul pointed out the willful sins of the unbelieving world. And I'm sure many of those who heard him doing that and read his words as he was doing that, particularly those who came from a Jewish background, they would have echoed Paul's thoughts. They would have said, absolutely right. What he's saying is absolutely correct. But in this chapter, the Apostle Paul kind of flips things around a little bit here, and he wanted to make clear that those who grew up in the traditions of Judaism also needed Christ to save them. That Christ wasn't just here to save those who grew up in the Gentile world, but the Jewish people needed Christ to save them as well. And he was encouraging them to be introspective about these thoughts. Now, let me ask this, and I'll throw out a bunch of questions today, but let me just ask this. Why is it so difficult to be introspective? You know, it's something that I ask the Lord regularly to develop within my own life, but it's a difficult thing sometimes. Why is it so difficult? Why is it tricky sometimes to be introspective? I think when we're being introspective, when we're looking at what's going on inside of us, our heart motivations, our thinking, you know, things that impact our character, when we're looking at those things and we actually want to know the answers, what we're doing is we're opening up ourselves to identify and admit that we're not perfect. Now, again, it's much easier to identify somebody else's imperfections because their failures don't necessarily reflect on us. And their weaknesses might actually be in areas that we feel particularly strong. But God hasn't called us to go through this life judging and condemning others because the truth is we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us is in the same boat. So what's more fruitful? Spending our lives pointing out the sins and the faults of, of others or identifying and repenting of our own. And I think it's much more fruitful to identify and repent of my own sin than it is for me to spend the bulk of my life trying to point those areas out in other people's lives. And this scripture here reminds us that we're guilty of the same exact things that we take delight in pointing out in the lives of others. That we're guilty of the same exact thing. And when you think about it, and I want you to kind of think about this as an umbrella truth when you're looking at these issues as they're presented in Scripture. But every sin, so every sin in my life, every sin in your life, every sin in the life of any person that ever lives, every sin at its core is the fruit of unbelief. When you trace sin back to something, what it really conveys is unbelief. Every sin at its core is the fruit of unbelief. So can any one of us say that we have always believed every promise of God in every moment of our lives, or is there still clear evidence that we still struggle to believe and apply the truth of His gospel in some of our weaker moments and in some of the areas that we might struggle with? Are there areas that we're not fully appreciating the depth of His gospel and grasping onto it with our whole heart? Every sin at its core is the fruit of unbelief. Everything in my life that doesn't belong there shows that there's an area of my life where I'm still struggling to trust God. Self-righteousness is a very costly thing to practice. 
And one of the biggest expenses that we'll experience if self-righteousness is something that is heavily rooted in our lives and isn't rooted out of our lives as a result is the loss of our ability to identify issues in our own lives that need to be addressed and confessed. We won't notice those things. We'll embrace our sin because we'll become blissfully ignorant of the fact that it's actually present. So we'll comfort our sin, and we'll nurture our sin, and we'll give it a place of prominence in our lives. And what it'll do is it'll, it'll eventually destroy our reputations. It will hurt our ability to make Christ known to others, and it will inhibit the development of our spiritual maturity. Have you ever heard of Mark Twain? I'm assuming we all have probably heard of Mark Twain. In fact, if you go down to Barnes & Noble, uh, down uh, the one in Fairless Hills, I noticed that right above the coffee area, they have a caricature of Mark Twain. And every time I notice it, I look at it, and I'm like, Mark Twain, I, I like that guy's personality. I recognize he's not around any longer. Uh, but he was kind of an interesting person. And I'm not sure if he and I would be friends or if we would get mad at each other for trying to steal each other's jokes. Uh, but I, I recently watched a biography of him, and I, was, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know what, there's two people from that era of history that I think I try and be like a little too much. And one is when I look at some of the things Teddy Roosevelt did, I think, well, I want to be more like that guy. And the other is Mark Twain. And I read something recently that Mark Twain said that cracked me up because I could picture him in that context getting up in front of somebody and saying this. But he was talking to a businessman in New England, and this businessman apparently had been noted for being just very ruthless. And he was very aggressive, and he was very unkind to other people. And he was talking to Mark Twain, and I guess they were in a context where there were some bigwigs hanging out and talking, and he, and he was telling Mark Twain some of his remaining ambitions. And he said, Mark, before I die, I want to make, I want to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And when I get there, I want to climb Mount Sinai. And I want to read the Ten Commandments out loud. And he's saying this in a very boisterous manner. And Mark Twain looked at him and he's like, hmm, it's interesting. He's like, you know, I have a better idea. You should stay in Boston and start keeping them. <laughs> Could you imagine, you know, but I'm sure the guy was like, oh, <laughs> that's great. That's great, Mark, jerk. You know, that's probably what he's saying in that moment. But self-righteousness will cost us something, won't it? It'll cost us the ability to identify issues in our lives that need to be addressed. We won't even notice it. We'll notice everybody else's issues, and we won't even notice our own. And these are things that desperately need to be addressed and confessed over to the Lord. But that's not the only thing self-righteousness will cost us. The Scripture tells us it'll cost us something else, too. What else will it cost us? Well, the Scripture tells us that it's going to cost me the ability to appreciate the kindness of God. If self-righteousness is the primary, dominant characteristic of my life, I will lose the ability to appreciate the kindness of God. It won't even be a priority in my life. Look at what verse 4 and verse 5 say. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pause there for just a moment. Uh, 
During my high school and during my college years, I had the privilege to work in camping ministry. Worked at a summer camp, also worked for retreats during the course of the year. And in that process, I learned a lot about the Lord, I learned a lot about myself, and I actually learned a lot about leadership by serving in that kind of context. And when I first became a summer camp counselor, I know some of you have had the privilege to serve in this capacity during the summer months, and it can be a stretching experience. But I remember when I first became a summer camp counselor, looking for advice from anyone who was willing to give me some sort of helpful suggestion, because it really was a test of leadership. It was very difficult for me to go from serving in other roles to now being in a position where I had to be responsible for usually like anywhere from six to ten people at any given time. And I wanted them to listen to my instructions, but I also knew that in many cases, I really wasn't that much older than them. And so I would ask people for advice. How does this work? How do I, how do I actually lead a group of people that are pretty close to my age? And I was given some advice from a school teacher. This ended up being bad advice, but I tried it anyway. Um, she said to me, she said, so in my context, I make it a point never to smile until Thanksgiving. So when a new school year starts, I don't smile until Thanksgiving. That's what she said. Don't smile till Thanksgiving. So in my mind, I thought, all right, well, the campers come on Sunday, they leave on Saturday. That means I really shouldn't smile until Tuesday, maybe early Wednesday. So I tried that approach and I tried to be kind of strict and stern and serious, which really doesn't work well for me, and I think they could probably see right through it. Um, But I was trying my best, and I realized it did not have the effect that I wanted it to have. In fact, it kind of was, um, it, it created an unhealthy distance between me and these campers that I was trying to lead. So in future years, as I started to learn a little bit more about how this process worked, I learned that it was both possible and preferable to set reasonable expectations and to maintain order while also being genuinely warm and genuinely kind. And when I learned that there was a balance between those things, it really helped me in that role of leadership. And I bring that up because when you look at how God is described in this portion of Scripture, there's something about Him that we can easily miss when it comes to our understanding of Him that I don't think He wants us to miss. I think sometimes we think that God is all stern and that He's all business and that He's all um, kind of aggressive in the demeanor that He conveys. And yet you look at the Scripture, what does it tell us? It tells us that God is kind. That God is kind. If somebody asks you, what's God like? This God you worship, what is He like? Would you think to include the adjective that God is? is kind. And here when we look at this scripture, what does it tell us? That God is kind. He's kind to us in ways that we don't deserve. He comforts us in our grief. He grants us hope beyond our circumstances. God the Father even sent God the Son to this earth to bear our sin and bear our condemnation upon Himself at the cross so that we could be redeemed and forgiven. And there is no greater example of kindness and love than that. God's even patient with us when we go through this sanctifying process that He's walking us through. And what I mean by that is this, as we trust in Him and as we walk through life empowered by Him, our faith gradually matures. And He's patient with us in the midst of this 
maturation process, right? As we're learning from our mistakes and as our appreciation for the depth of God's love is growing. We start to understand that God really is kind. We also learn that it's safe to repent of our sins to Him because He's loving, because He's kind. We don't need to hold these things in. We don't need to hold these things to ourselves. We don't need to go through our lives uh, just weighing ourselves down with shame and guilt because of things we won't unload to God because we're fearful that He's not going to be kind about dealing with us. And yet when we look at Scripture, it says, no, God is kind. He is safe to confess to. He is safe to repent to. He desires that we do that. He knows that you and I are struggling with all sorts of things, but He's patiently teaching us that we can safely handle our, that we could safely hand our struggles over to Him. And we could stop embracing our former sins. But here's where our sinful nature likes to make this complicated. Sometimes even though we know that God's wrath is going to be poured out upon all sin and all unrighteousness, I think we can easily try to justify our desire to rebel against Him because we're convinced He's going to forgive us anyway. You ever find yourself in that position? He's going to forgive me anyway. I'll just do whatever I want to do, right? You know, we tell our things like this, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but I also know that God loves me, and I don't think He's going to hold it against me. Have you ever said that to yourself in one way or another? I'll just admit to you that I've absolutely done that. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one. I would suspect that we've probably all done that at one point in our lives. Why is that such a tragic perspective? Why is that not the thing that we should be adopting as our mindset or our pattern? Well, it's a tragic perspective because it makes light of the fact that Christ suffered to make us righteous. He didn't suffer to hand us right back to what used to enslave us. He suffered to make us righteous. I love what it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, "...for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin." so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sin upon Himself so that He could bless us with the gift of His righteousness. He took our condemnation upon Himself so that our condemnation could be lifted and we could be ushered into the family of God forever. That's kind of God. We don't deserve that from God. But that's the kind of kindness that He shows us. And making light, I want you to think about this for a second. I want to put this in terms that I think can be vivid for our minds to to grasp. But making light of God's kindness is also tragic because it's the same thing as responding to hugs from God with a slap. He reaches out to embrace us and we respond with an aggressive slap to His face. It's like, Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for embracing me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Crack. There's no difference in minimizing the kindness of God than insulting Him to His face and slapping Him with aggression. And that's not His desire for us. God wants us to appreciate His kindness, not to try and take advantage of it. But the spirit of self-righteousness says what? The spirit of self-righteousness says, I don't need the kindness of God. I don't have anything to repent about in my life anyway. I'm fine as I am. Focus on somebody else and leave me alone. 
That's a very sad way to respond to the kindness and the mercy that God desires to show us. And when we embrace self-righteousness, it comes at a great cost. And a big part of that cost is it costs us the ability to appreciate the kindness that God delights to show us. And there's one other thing that Paul brings out in this portion of Scripture that I want to highlight for us today, because you can see these things building as he's addressing this issue of self-righteousness. And the other cost that he brings out in this portion of Scripture is this. He reveals to us that if self-righteousness is, some, if self-righteousness is something that we choose to embrace as our mindset and our lifestyle, it's going to cost us the ability to admit that we are one day closer to being on the receiving end of God's judgment. We're not even going to think about it. We're not even going to notice it. It's not going to be high on our priority list. Look at what Paul says in verse 6 down to verse 11. Speaking of that day, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So think about those verses for just a moment. What does the future hold for us? You know, what does the Lord have in store for us in the future? And by the way, do you look forward to the future, or is the future something that you honestly feel like you dread? Do you look forward to it? Do you dread it? What, what's your thought on it? And if you've genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you are marked as belonging to God forever. So that being the case, how do you feel about Paul's teaching in this passage that everyone will one day come before the throne of God to have their life evaluated and judged. Does that thought trouble you? Is that something that you ever really allow yourself to think about? Well, the Scripture teaches us that our works will be evaluated by the Lord. If we live by faith in Christ and our earthly life was conducted with eternity in view, we have a lot to look forward to. But if we spent our lives absorbed in the false promises of self-righteousness and never received the righteousness of Christ by faith, the Scripture reveals we have the wrath and the fury of God in store for us. Paul basically reveals to us here in this portion of Scripture that we will experience in eternity whatever we embraced in this life. Regardless of our heritage, regardless of our background, If we embraced evil, we will experience an eternity of tribulation and distress. That's how he describes the eternity of the one who embraced evil. If we embrace the righteousness of Christ, that's first of all going to be shown by the goodness of Christ on display during the course of our lives, but it also means we'll experience the eternity of glory and honor in Christ's presence that Christ has promised all who trust in Him. So that means if the only righteousness in our lives is self-righteousness, we'll lose sight of eternity. We're not going to be thinking about eternal things. We'll be so full of ourselves that we won't really give the Lord and what He has in store much thought at all. We'll be thinking primarily about ourselves. 
not long ago I encountered uh, a man and a woman who lived their lives primarily concerned or characterized with short-term thinking. And we had multiple conversations about this, and I think that they're starting to see that this was an issue and that this was the, you know, an issue that was prevailing all along. But from the time they were young, they rarely made decisions with the long term in mind. And so what that looked like was when finances were good, they wasted them. And when their health was fine, they abused it. And now they're at the age where those decisions have caught up with them. And they would say that they spent most of their lives not thinking about the fact that that day would come. But now that day is here. And it's a constant struggle for them. And it's a matter that they're praying about. But it's the fruit of living their lives only focused on short-term things. Never thinking about what was beyond their present moment. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, you have the Lord revealing things to us that are in our future. Things that are up ahead. And when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and this isn't a unique portion of Scripture. There's other sections in God's Word that speak about the day of the Lord. They speak about this day when we give an account. So why does God tell us things about judgment, or about wrath, or about honor and glory in passages like this? Why would He do something like that? Why does He tell us things like that? Is it because He's cruel, or because He's kind? I mean, think about that in light of the previous verses. Is the Lord revealing these things to us because He's cruel, or because He's kind. I believe He's telling us what we need to know ahead of time because He's kind. I think it's another evidence of the kindness of God. He's mercifully granting us time to prepare for what comes next. He's graciously helping us to see that we are one day closer to when we'll see Him face to face and give our final account That day is absolutely coming. So in the meantime, ask yourself a question. Or do yourself a huge huge favor by asking this of yourself. Where does my sense of righteousness come from? Where does my sense of righteousness come from? Is it a form of self-righteousness that's costing me something? And we've looked at this this chapter from God's Word, this section from Romans chapter 2, and it lists the things that it will cost us. So is, it a, is my righteousness a form of self-righteousness that's costing me something? Or is my sense of righteousness anchored in the righteousness of Christ who graciously grants me all things as I trust in Him? Where is our sense of righteousness coming from? As we finish up, I want to show us one more portion of Scripture. It's one of my favorites, and it's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But in Matthew 6, 33, it says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And if we genuinely trust in Jesus Christ, we welcome Him to be our Savior, if we welcome Him to be our Lord, our God, our Messiah, We will be given His righteousness as a gift. And we no longer need to rely on our own righteousness, which Scripture describes as if we're handing over garbage to God. Because the righteousness of man does not compare to the righteousness of God. 
So He desires to give us His righteousness. So we don't need to rely on self-righteousness throughout the course of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And Lord, we recognize that it's very easy for us as men and women living in the course of our day-to-day lives in this world, to rely on our own self-righteousness. And Lord, when we, when we see that at work in the lives of others, we find it very off-putting. We find it very distasteful. And yet it's so much easier to notice in the life of somebody else than it is to notice in our own lives. But Lord, You have not called us to be self-righteous, smug, sneering people. You've called us to be people who live our lives on this earth as men and women who are grateful for the mercy and the kindness that you've shown us. And we know, Lord, that when we ignore the gift of your righteousness that we receive as a gift through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we also start becoming focused on our own self-righteousness, which then causes us to forget about your kindness. We start to go through life thinking we don't even need your intervention on our behalf because we think we're so perfect. We think we're so wonderful as is. And that's the opposite of what this portion of Scripture teaches. This portion of Scripture teaches us that we need the righteousness that you supply. So Lord, help us to become convinced of this truth. And Lord, if there's areas of our lives where we're still way too reliant on our own righteousness. We pray that we would submit those things over to you, that we would rejoice in the righteousness that you supply as we believe in you, and that we would walk with you faithfully day by day as men and women who realize that we are rescued and redeemed through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, not by our own merit, not by our own efforts, not by any fake righteousness that we could conjure up. And Lord, we pray that we'd also be mindful of the truth that you speak about in this portion of Scripture when we interact with people who don't share our beliefs. Lord, we recognize that it's the expectation of many people that we interact with that when they encounter a devoted Christian, that they're going to experience some level of condemnation and some level of self-righteousness. But we pray, Lord, that we would surprise the people that you place in our lives who as of yet do not know you. We pray, Lord, that they would be surprised at the graciousness and the merciful attitude and the kindness that's displayed by each and every one of us as we appreciate the kindness and the mercy and the love that you've shown us. So, Lord, we pray that your heart would become the characteristics that go on display in our day-to-day lives. And we're grateful, Lord, for your love. We're grateful for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to spend time together reading it and thinking about it and putting it into practice. And we pray, Lord, that we would rely on your strength today and throughout the course of this week to actually live out the things that you convey in the teaching of Scripture. We're grateful for this all, Lord. Again, thank you for the gift of your righteousness that we receive through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.